I get to read this time. You get to read this time. Me. Let's do it. Let's do it. <laughs> That's going to be fun to edit out. <laughs> Thankfully, it's a really big, loud noise. Uh-huh. <laughs> okay. Hello, and welcome to Abbey Archives, a Redwall reread featuring one pagan and one Christian going over the series to see what aged like fine strawberry wine and what aged like milk. I'm Izzy. I use sincere pronouns. And I'm Kit. I use she, her pronouns. You can find us and content for the podcast, including art and links to other Redwall-related things, at Abbey Archives on Twitter and Tumblr. Today, we are reading the second half of part three of Marielle from chapters 36 to 42. Uh, Content warnings, war and siege tactics, arachnid-related death, uh, brutal death descriptions, death by animal attack, uh, death in general, also uh, severe bodily harm. Yeah, like just this this part, the end of this book gets there's a there's a couple pages that really the final battle. It's, it's the not final just that, but like, countdown. It's the thing where Brian decides, I'm going to fight you! It's that thing Brian does where he decides, I'm going to have two pages that go into, like, absolute, like, this should be in, like, this wouldn't be out of place in, like, an adult Game of Thrones. Book. Yeah. Just like, hello, would you like some, uh... Some terror, like some uh, murder, some death. terror horror, murder, murder death. death, murder, murder death, death kill. I hate that movie. Um. <laughs> so we open following Flag and Mellis walking through the morning woodlands. Their lack of sleep and inexperience in the woods has made finding the sea rat camp near impossible at the moment. They decide to settle down and quickly fall asleep in the drowsy summer morning heat. Uh, a spider wakes Flag up just in time for him to hear two sea rats. They're out hunting what we assume is Han Rosing, swearing they'd killed her three times already, and how'd she make that leap clean over Greypatch's head? They've spotted something in the ferns nearby, and the distraction gives Flag time to wake up Mellis. The two prepare their bows, stand, and Mellis calls out, Ahoy there! to get the attention of the rats. They're quickly shot through. Uh, we find it is Rosie, badly torn up and damaged, curled up in the ferns. She has just enough energy to say hello and apologize for being killed. And I was wondering about this because I, I had a feeling because they they cut he cut away so swiftly that they they were gonna some of them were gonna survive or at least one of them would survive something. I knew that there would be some kind of hope because Brian loves hope. He loves having good characters survive. You know, honestly, he also does that with villains, too. A lot of villains escape situations they should have died in. Yeah. Um, to give him credit there. And I remember thinking when I was reading the part with the suicide charge about how I'm like, what's going to happen with Tarquin? Because I know that Tarquin has been talking about Rosie this whole book. He's like part of his whole reason for doing what he's doing is he really looks forward to seeing Rosie again. He's like, what's she going to think? What's she going to do? Oh, ha, ha, ha. This is so crazy. What's Han Rosie going to think about this? And my thought was that Brian, like, there's not enough left in this book for Brian to write Tarquin coming back and that emotional realization of Rosie's gone. 
Because we do have, like, he, Brian likes to keep characters' reactions to off-screen deaths, I wouldn't say subtle, but more subdued. Like, they'll be sad, and he'll express that they're sad, but often he'll have them be in a situation where they can't stop and process that grief at that moment. Like, Brian really keeps the story moving by having these events happen in a place where they're like, okay, we can't address this now. Time to compartmentalize that and we'll deal with it later when the book is over, you know. Um, So I was thinking... If they deal with it at all. Right. So it's like, all right, so how is Brian going to have Tarquin deal with this? Well, the answer is he's not. Rosie's going to survive. And you know what? I kind of like this because I was cleaning my books out yesterday because I'm getting a new bookcase today. And... Love I was getting looking... the Snapchat of the, your side table, which was just full of Dresden <laughs> file books. Uh, just Be- absolutely chock full of them. Because I'm thinking about getting rid of my Dresden file books. And I bring this up because I like that Han Rosie is the one who lived. Because so often in books, including the Dresden files, which I do, part of me does still love dearly. But uh, David, uh, or sorry, But Butcher has a very bad habit of killing off any woman who actually becomes competent and or might give Harry a modicum of comfort and or human warmth. So, and he killed off my favorite character in the last book. So it's like, you know what? No, I'm not going to put up with this. I don't even know if I'm going to try and bother reading the next book. So I'm I'm telling Brian Jacks right now, Jakes, Brian Jakes right (laughs) now, um, Thank you, sir, for not killing off the girl and fridging her, and good points to you, sir. God, this was certain before, like, fridge horror was really, like, a known trope, wasn't it? I, this was 80s? Uh, was this one 80s? Let's see, well, my copy was printed in 93. Okay. Of course, me... this might not be. It's the it's the Avon book, too, and Avon was the first print, right? It was published in 1991. Okay. I would say, I think fridge horror started to become a concept. Well, no, we're, we're getting our tropes mixed up here, though. Um, fridging a female character is based off of an incident in, I think, the Marvel comics where... Wasn't it Batman? No, it wasn't Batman. I think it was... Yeah, because wasn't it Dr. Freeze? Where he no. fridged his wife? No, 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 no. Because the comic that happened in uh it wasn't even a wife i think it was a girlfriend the okay warning for body mutilation here but the girlfriend was murdered chopped up and put in the superhero's fridge found it found it i found it i found it yeah i googled it i found it fridging or women in refrigerators is shorthand for a persistent sexist trope named after a 1994 green lantern comic in which the hero returns home to find that his nemesis major force has murdered his girlfriend alexandra dewitt and stuffed her corpse into a fridge yep that's it so Um, this book was in fact written before fridging was coined that's not to say that the trope didn't already exist but the term was coined in 1994 but also, I would like to bring up fridge horror because that actually plays into something later in this book, and I will bring it up then as well because I make a small note on it. But I think fridge horror, it is a trope that was coined because, like, when you're watching a show, you're just kind of relaxed. You're just enjoying it. You're in the moment. But the minute you stand up to go to the fridge to get a drink, that's when it hits you, wow, 
this whole situation was really fucked up. And that is what fridge horror is. And I will again point out the part in this book where fridge horror definitely hits because I would say fridge horror like as a concept probably started to really get used like 70s and 80s, especially like in 80s science fiction. 80s science fiction loved its fridge horror. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Yes. Anyway. <laughs> Uh, Mellis begins patching uh, Rosie up as best as she can, having Flag use the long bows and whatever else they can scrounge up to put together a stretcher, like they use their belts, vines, whatever the fuck they can find. Um, the whole time she uh, coaxes and threatens on Rosie, she has to live for Clary in time. Like, it's it's one of those sweet things where it's like, you can't die, do you hear me, Rosie? Wake up! If you die, I'll kill you! Oh, I'm sorry, dear, Live! Live for Clarion time. Live. <laughs> it's very desperate. It's mm-hmm. it's a well-written moment. Mm-hmm. A later party of Redwallers set out to find Mellis and Flag with the three squirrels up in the treetops to show the way. There's some little antics with improvised weapons and Burgo's bad habit of munching wild garlic. Gross. Like, sir, please stop. <laughs> Oak Tom spots Mellis and Flag, and she's quick to take control of the group, having the squirrels return to the abbey, uh, that's a weird way to have written that sentence. <laughs> hey. At all haste. Yeah, he returns to the abbey at all haste. That's, I, that's how I've always heard it used. I don't think I've ever heard it written that way, but okay. That's what, okay. It, it feels stilted in my mouth. Okay, uh, sorry. For, for like again, like I read I read a lot of fantasy books, so for me that's how they say that. Yeah. Having the squirrels return to the abbey at all haste to alert the healers and get the sick bay ready. The rest lend more than willing hands to carry the stretcher. Don't you mean pause? More than willing pause. <sighs> Alright, every pony, let's keep reading. <laughs> Back with the rats, Deadglim reports to a baffled, befuddled, and dispirited Grey Patch. Eighteen rats left, not counting the two who'd gone after Rosie. Which Grey Pass immediately dismisses like, uh, they're, they're fucking dead. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Grey Patch considers how badly things had gone since he tried to abandon the sea and decides enough is enough. Back to the Dark Queen, back to the sea. Who cares how long it takes to get her seaworthy again? And Deadglim is more than happy to hear this. And I kind of like this because it's finally a villain just going, you know what? Screw it. This this abbey is not worth it. We don't know how to live in this land. We don't know how to fight these creatures. Forget it. We're going back to what we know. And it's like, you know what? I respect that. I mean, it took over like 80, 80 sea rats dying for him to finally admit this, but... It'd be he, like that sometimes. <laughs> he's, he's doing better than other villains. <laughs> Marginally. Who only try to run away after they've lost all of their crew. Uh-huh. They're only mostly dead. <laughs> to blame. <laughs> liar! Liar! God. If you guys haven't gone and watched the moonshot uh, moon landing reading of uh, The Princess Bride, it's very good because they did um, Magic Max and his wife as just Bob and Linda Belcher <laughs> from Bob's Burgers. Very funny. 
God. It was very unexpected in the moment. I lost my fucking shit. <laughs> <laughs> Alright. Outside the sick bay in Redwall, Tree Rose paces. Um, the father comes out asking her to get a clean towel and a fresh bowl of warm water. And she asks tearily if Rosie will be okay. He assures her that due to her swiftness at alerting the healers and the quick march of the stretcher bearers, Han Rosie will be around for many more seasons to come. After she leaves, Mellis comes out and comments on how Tree Rose had changed overnight from a brat to a very helpful and kind creature. They both muse that they must be raising the young ones right somehow. No, you're not. That's the trauma. That's the trauma of seeing creatures die. Yeah, it's like, mm, are you sure about the? It's like, Mother Mellis, you ain't did shit. <laughs> she's, <laughs> it's legitimately just the trauma. Like, it just, she's, they're taking credit for something they didn't do. Me she at Mother Mellis, just... you keep saying these things. I do not think they mean what you think they mean. Yes. Just, m- madam, madam, like, yes, you are doing, she, she is doing good in some ways. Like, we can tell she is clearly raising good creatures because you have Dandan and Dury and Saxus, who are all very good creatures. And we later learn that even the troublesome trio grow up to be pretty good people. Refresh Oak Tom. Yeah. And, but it's like, it's a moment like this where they're, they're taking credit for something they didn't do that kind of just ruffles my feathers a bit. Um... And like I know it's meant to be like them comforting themselves as well because things just went so badly that they need a little bit of comfort. But I am also going to call them out on this. This wasn't their raising. This is legitimately a trauma response to being forced to grow up kit, too fast. Kit, kit, don't you know trauma builds character? <sighs> I mean, yes, but at what cost? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Also, I was, like, I don't know if I said this earlier. I probably didn't because I was like, mm, they haven't interacted enough for me to make that comment. But now I'm just like, Tree Rose and Rosie should have gotten married. <laughs> they could have been the Rosies. Yeah, but I think Rosie's too old for her. Maybe? Uh we don't know yeah. how old any of them are. We just know that Tree Rose is young and Rosie is around Tarkin's age and Tarkin is young. Good point. But then again, we all know that Brian like teases us with multi-species or, or different species relationships in almost every book, but never really, you know, Commits. like they're, they're platonic life partners. That's the best we get sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Um. Let them be gay and interspecies, damn it. <laughs> Saxus keeps an eye on the real little dibbins in the strawberry patch as the kiddos gobble up the recent batch of ripe fruit. They ask if the sea rats are all gone, and yes, Saxus assumes they are. They haven't seen them for quite a while. Uh, Of course, the dibbins are upset at not having had a chance to fight them, and Saxus counters that, isn't it much nicer to relax and eat strawberries? Well, Grub says it would be if Saxus wasn't laying on the best ones. And the older mouse sits up, uh... He's got, like, cold strawberry juice running down his back. Uh, and it gives the dip a chance to get at the now-squished berries. Just makes my skin absolutely crawl at the thought of, like, it's so sticky! Strawberry juice is so sticky! It's Wait. in his fur! <laughs> sure is sticky. And God, these children, they're gonna have so much trauma. Oh my God. Well, I think the three little ones will probably be okay, because for them, this is gonna be, like, a fuzzy memory. Um, it's Saxtus. Saxtus who's... Yeah, Saxtus, 
this boy is going to be, I mean, he's going to be all right. We see at the end of the book, but he still has a rough time of it. Most of the, the abbots that pop up in these books usually seem to. Yeah. Well, then again, what what was it you just said? Trauma builds character. (laughs) Yeah. Trauma builds character. So that's. Small, small thing. I know, I'm sorry. I keep going no, on you're tangents good. this morning. But I enjoyed this book and it gives us a lot of fun talking points. But, you know, just recently in my friend group, we had a little bit of friend drama. And oh, I no. am an old veteran of online fan- friend drama. So I had one <laughs> of them. One of them literally said, I'm waiting for Kit to wake up so she can give us advice on what to do. And, you know, it's like I get like we spent about an hour like writing out replies me helping edit them and in the end it worked like we we resolved the drama in a very good and positive way it resolved itself good but one of my friends said something that just kind of made me go oh because they just very calmly said i'm i'm very sorry that you know how to do this so well and i'm just like that's the trauma But it worked. I was able to use it to help my friends. So yeah, trauma does build character. It sucks and I wish it didn't happen, but I can use that to help my friends now so they don't have to go through the same thing. It's also just experience in general. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is why like uh, I I tell people, like I made the comment in uh, one of the last recordings about like the age difference between Tree Rose and Roof, which is like a 14 year old and a 17 year old in the way Mm. that they're portrayed. They're both, like, not, they're not Dibbins anymore. They're both teenagers, but there's such a ocean of experience between them already. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, like, if somebody's never experienced these things, and, like, you've got somebody who has, you know. Mm-hmm. It'd be like that. It it'd sucks. be like that. All right. Sister Sage and Simeon sneak out of the sick bay, trying to let Rosie rest, but the creak of, their, of the door hinges. Blah, 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 blah. But at the creak of the door hinges, Rosie opens her eyes to comment on how she'd lived after all. And the two marvel at her ability to survive. Seriously? Like, Jesus Christ, Rosie, what the fuck? <laughs> Just, and now we're moving on. Joseph is showing Mariel and Ronblade three advantageous tunnels around the fort. Mariel and her father share the same idea, a three-pronged attack on the enemy fort. And down below... Dandan and Tarkin befriend the younger members of the Trag. A shrew asks about Redwall, and together they play a little ditty about the wonderful Abbey. And I find it interesting because there's a lot, there's less music in this book, and the riddle quest was solved in the second half of the book, like, really quick. You know, I like this, because sometimes Brian will drag that riddle quest out until, like, almost the last chapter, but this one he said, no, it did its job, it's done, we're moving on. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Uh, despite, like, having a bard with them, there's been a level of seriousness with the main characters that we really haven't had since Martin. And mm-hmm. even in, like, Mossflower, it was still, mm-hmm. there was a lot of music because of Gonf. Yeah. Which is wild, because both Dandan and Tarkin are ostensibly bards. So yeah. they've had two bards, and there's just not been a lot of music because there's just been too many dangerous situations to justify having music where they wouldn't, you know, immediately get shot. Yeah. But the we can also read the little ditty. Would you like to yes, read it? Yes, I will. Okay. On the old brown path from north to south is a place you'd love to stay in. Come one, come all, to old Redwall, and hear what I am saying. 
There's an orchard there that's fat and fair, with apple, berry, plum, and pear. There's a pond with fish, and all you'd wish, to grace a supper table dish. Leave a nice soft bed to rest your head, or sleep beneath the trees instead. If you meet the abbot, then, be sure to shake him by the paw. The old brown path from north to south, it's peaceable and free, where our abbey stands amid woodlands, I'm sure you'd love to be there. I can't read rhyming schemes, That's apparently. okay. It, that it, it went kinda... bad. It stutters a little bit in the end there anyway. It's okay. I think Tarquin uh, was making some of this up. Probably. Uh, he's probably making all of it up. Uh, <laughs> so Dury dances a bit while the pair do two more rounds of the song. Once it's over, slaves who have little to no memories of their homes chat about Redwall. They're told of the wonderful foods, how everyone is free, and Mother Mellis would be happy to adopt all of them and give them a bath. Two young hedgehogs ask if they'd really be their mother, and Dury says, of course. Not only that, he and his uncle, no, his nuncle, nuncle, his nuncle, not his uncle, his nuncle, Gabe, will adopt them and make them proper cellar hogs. And like, these are baby babies. Their crawls are still soft. They're riddle. They're little. Like, why are you kidnapping babies this small? Their paws are too small to go around the oars, I'd imagine. They got. They gotta have. They gotta have the, to to say the really gross but very obvious thing. They have to have, a a, a supply. Yeah. Yeah, you ain't wrong. Nope. I'm from the south. I know I ain't wrong. <laughs> I'm super not wrong. No. <laughs> okay. So once everyone's back in the cavern, a general meeting is called. Ronblade is amazed at how many people they have, and we learn they'd gained about a hundred more new folks to help them. Even if they're still outnumbered, it helps. And, like, speaking of, like, having a supply, this is where I made a small comment of, like, I thought there would be more ore slaves, because, like, I, I mean, there probably aren't more ore slaves than there are rats on all the boats, but still, like, there's a lot of ores on these boats. So, like, say each boat had, like you know 12 oars on each side then there's two animals per oar on each side that's a lot of critters yeah you know but izzy points out yeah the obvious thing here is that like there's definitely more uh slaves around but they they there's probably a decent number of them who are not able-bodied enough to fight and need to rest um, I also, uh, thinking about it, realized that I don't think Brian would have, like, had the thought to have the rats have, like, a quote-unquote supply of slaves. Mm-hmm. Um, they would just go and, like, find more. Uh, whereas, like, if these were, like, actual, like, you know ship captains utilizing like a slave force like this they would have like a supply of them in the same way that people have a a supply of cows yes and no because the type of slavery that brian is pulling from is the type of slavery that was done during the vikinger era of england where in that era primarily like yes there were like families of slaves like people who had been enslaved but a lot of them when they were born were either allowed out of slavery or they were incorporated into the local population it wasn't the chattel slavery that we chattel chattel Chattel. 
it wasn't the chattel slavery that we saw in America and a few other parts of the world during, you know, that era of slavery. Like, I'm not, like, slavery is slavery, but there are different kinds of slavery, if that makes sense. Mm. Like, a lot of the Viking slavery was hit and run. You, you grabbed whoever you wanted and you took off. You weren't going down to the nearest village saying, hey, I'm going to buy your enemy tribe over there if you help me catch them. You know? Well, yeah. Um, no, what I'm talking about is, like, um, if the rats were, quote unquote, smart. This is, I need to say this, this is not us advocating for this. This is us just kind of thinking through the process of, like, if the rats were smarter <laughs> about what they were doing. They're yeah. not, thank God. Um they would have like the the slaves that live at Terramort in the fort. Yeah, you know they would have they their would own take, home areas. They know. would take like the younger, stronger ones. Like they'd swap them out. Mm -hmm. You know, because they'd have them. They'd live there, and you know. I mean, that also plays into the cartoonish villainy that Brian loves to play with with the vermin. Yeah. Because we, we saw with the earlier bit about how they, they feed the slaves poorly. They treat them like crap. If they die, they just chuck them overboard. Whereas, like, if you're out in the ocean, in the sea, you don't really want your, uh, air quotes, engine falling apart like that. You wouldn't treat them good, but you'd still treat them better. Well, like, eh. Like, if you're out at sea and your slaves are just dying off one by one, maybe feed them okay. a little better so you don't... <sighs> like, just... Like, again, they're not going to treat their slaves well, but it just always seemed a little odd to me that he depicts them just, like, completely neglecting them. Where it's like, this is, like... This is the boat's engine. This is what the boat uses to go aside from wind. You'd think they'd treat them just slightly better. Not good no. enough that they get spunky. Not good enough that they start to get their spirit back, but enough that they can still, like, function as the tool they're supposed to be. No, you give them just enough to survive, and if they die, they die. Yeah. Uh, which is how it's always been. Yeah. Um, anyway, now that we've yeah. talked about horrible things. Yeah, woohoo! We're having fun this recording! Whee! All right. Ronblade lays out the plan, drawing with some charcoal. He will take one group, Mariel a second, and Joseph a third. Mariel is flattered that he's acknowledged her as a fellow warrior. Uh, her group will be silent death from above with slings and arrows. She orders everyone to keep low, out of sight, no trying to get into the courtyard, no making obvious targets of themselves. Uh, Tarkin and his group will go after the courtyard gate, making as much noise as possible with a battering ram. Finally, Ron Blade will shove a large boulder into the rear wall of the courtyard, hopefully breaching it. Uh, I love the uh, conspicuously placed boulder that just exists there. <laughs> uh, Danon and his group will come back. Uh, will come to back Ron Blade up, and Tarkin's group is to either breach the gate or use the battering ram as a ladder. And like, this is a solid plan. It's a very solid plan. They've got the terrain plan. on their side. Mm-hmm. Uh. When they get in, it's up to luck. Uh, whoever gets to Gabul first. And and I do like that he brings this up again. Like, there's just, there's so many people who are, like, gunning to get this rat dead. They just, they want this rat so dead. They want him the most dead. The deadest, in fact. The deadest rat. Dead as a doornail. 
The most dead. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Joseph stands for one last rousing speech. They shall clear the island of sea rats and the sea as well. Come morning if they win, they have ships to sail to freedom. And, I mean, they're not going to clear the sea of all, for all time of sea rats, but it's probably going to be quite a significant amount of time considering what happens in some later books. Yeah, it's going to be some time before the sea rats make their way back up into this area once they realize, huh, where's Gabool and his rabble? Yeah. Oh, they're gone. Our territory now. Right. <laughs> uh... The two hedgehogs shout out their plans to move to Redwall, and Joseph agrees. The good creatures of Redwall would take them all in. A cheer is raised, all the creatures ready to face the unknown of tomorrow. And then we cut to Grey Patch and his crew are just fucking lost in Mossflower Wood. They are so fucking lost. Mm -hmm. They're quick to settle into complaining and accusing one another of incompetence. All the while, Oak Tom watches from above. Fishgill makes a rather good suggestion, split into three groups and mark the trees as they go. That way, whoever finds the Dark Queen can come back and let the other two groups know. Greypatch agrees, uh, seconding the importance of marking the trees. Like, it's a good idea. It's a very good idea. Like, this is one of those moments where I'm glad that, like, Brian lets the vermin make a good suggestion. Because, like, I would say for the most part, the vermin in this book have been, I wouldn't say more competent, but they have been more proactive. A lot of them have thought one... things through more. Yeah. It's except not just for... one leader. Yeah. Yeah. Because there's multiple captains. They're not just all blindly following. Yeah. They're not just yeah. blindly following. They're challenging and or coming up with their own ideas, partially because Grey Patch doesn't punish them from doing so unless it is like... Um, big Stupid. <laughs> yeah, who was trying to be the big brute bully and it, you know, didn't go well for him. Yep. And it's, we've seen also Grey Patch does reward good ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, Oak Tom sets some false trails, marking trees with his lance. He notifies Larkguts, uh, he notices, blah, blah, blah. He notices Lardgut's crew is completely turned around and heading south towards the abbey. Uh, he tries to warn them, telling them to turn back and to follow Fishgill. Uh, when Lardgut sasses him, uh, he is slain by to Oak Tom's lance. The rest listen to the repeated warning and advice. Uh, unknown to them, though, they and Fishgill's crew were headed straight for Flitchye territory. And this is where I bring up the fridge horror aspect. Because I love this whole sequence, the subtle horror of it. Oak Tom doesn't even need to do that much because all he needs to do is keep them lost or send them in the wrong direction. The Flitche will take care of the rest of them. The forest will take care of the rest of them. Forests are dangerous. You will starve. You will get killed by another predator or by a poisonous plant or just some bad, stupid accident. You'll it's fall into so a ravine easy. and or, die. Yeah. Like, woodcraft and being, like, a good woodsman, is a, it's a craft for a reason. You have to learn how to survive in places like this. And again, I bring up the fridge horror here because Oak Tom is using the woods as a weapon, and I love this. It's good. So Oak Tom is more than okay with uh, the rats going into Flitch Eye territory. 
Uh, Roof and Tree Rose are back at the abandoned rodent camp, giving the hares a proper burial. With that on his mind, he goes to trip up Greypatch's group. Greypatch's group stumbles out of the forest onto the northern road, and they can see a ford of water up ahead. And if it's water, it flows to the sea, and maybe even to the Dark Queen. He sends a few ahead, laying down for just a little nap. Uh, and just as... Just just a little nap as a treat for the captain. And of course, just as he starts to fall asleep, uh, he's woken up by screams. Yeah. He sneaks up to the ford to see what's wrong. Well, yeah, the dragon's back. Irakatan has killed one rat. Three more are bobbing in the water, being torn apart by the shoal of pikes. <sighs> yeah, it, it the way that it is described is horrifying. Yeah, it's um. Ba -ba 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 -ba. Here we go. Uh, behind him, in the swift running, weed-streaked waters of the ford, the bodies of the three who had made it to the water bounced and bobbed in a grotesque parody of life. Though it was only the ripping jaws of the pike shoal which moved them. Like. Brian, hello? What the Ooh. fuck? Brian, sir. <laughs> Terrifying. I love it. Yeah. Uh, he sneaks further downstream, muttering assurances to himself that he'll find his ship. His crew will return. No way is he going to die in this forest. Uh, he pauses to drink uh, water some time later and realizes he's being watched. Calls out a challenge and is answered by a swift kick from Oak Tom that sends him into the river. Oak Tom so cows Greypatch with the anger on his face that he sends the rat scurrying downstream with little fight left in him. And three days later, Greypatch does indeed reach the sea, floating face down in the stream, Oak Tom's lance in his back like a sailless mast. The sea rat danger to Redwall is no more, and the hares are avenged. And you know what? We finally get a good vengeance thing. And Squirrels, you absolutely blew my mind pointing pointing out that this is yeah. why Oak Tom is in the book. And I was just like, holy crap, you're right. Mm -hmm. He might have been raised at Redwall, but he doesn't live at Redwall. He doesn't have the same qualms about not killing creatures because he's not a Redwall creature. He's not an Abbey creature. He lives in Mossflower Forest. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he has to do what he needs to do to survive. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that's why he, he showed up. Mm -hmm. was So that he could do the brutal killing. So that he could look another creature in the eye and kill them. Yep. Just very uh, good. Very good. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, Dawn the next day has the Red Wallers putting their home to rights. Grounds and the pond are cleared of fire damage and the put-out fire swingers. Uh, the front gate is getting repaired with the unwanted help of baby grub. <laughs> and the moles are more than happy to work with the wood. Saxus uh, gets... He, so what happens is Saxus is trying to get grub to put the hammer down. And when he tells grub to drop the hammer, grub just, you know, drops it right on his foot paw. Uh, and Grub goes and hides behind Sister Sage, who's pushing Rosie about in a wheelchair. Mobility aid! Kids, mobility aid! Mobility aid! This, this Abby is not ADA compliant. <laughs> and then I said, but consider, badgers. <laughs> Melis is not the one pushing her around. It's no, Sister Sage. It is. Um, but I'm just, they probably would be able to adapt it to be somewhat, like, it wouldn't be ADA compliant. All terrain! But, 
a wheelchair. <laughs> but I Those exist. Imagine... Oh, yeah, I know they do. But I can imagine that, like, they'd be able to put down, like, planks of wood to become a ramp. Like, they would be able to modify it if they needed to. Because, like, that's another thing, like, to give the Red Wallers credit. They are able to, like, build and modify stuff pretty quickly due to their yeah. resources and the creatures who live within their walls. Like, they are yeah. very... I mean, like, the fact that they're able to build, like, the bows and, like, other stuff so fast because they have so much so knowledge my, spread out. Okay, so my thing here, okay, is that we have seen in previous books that the infirmary is not on the first floor. Oh, good point. The infirmary is up around the dormitories. Yeah. Uh, the abbey is full of stairs and ladders. We are never given any descriptions of any ramps. The stairs no. are made of stone, which means that to a degree, they're going to be uneven. Yeah. The grounds are not paved. No. And if they do have any kind of paving, it's stone, which means it's pieces, which means it's uneven. Yeah. And then there's grass to contend with, and even dirt can cause problems for wheelchairs. But also, it's very rare in these books that we do see characters with, like, a mobility issue. Uh, I mean, we, we have Rosie right now, where they made a wheelchair for her. Um, you have uh, Simeon, who is blind, but, you know, he's, like, always being helped by someone. And, like, that's one thing that I will kind of give, like, a suggest is that because this is, like, a small, tight-knit community where the building might not have been built along those lines because... I think it's a case of, like, a lot of authors and writers do this. They just don't think about it. It's like that whole Zootopia thing that I, we're bringing up Zootopia again. Oh, my God. Um, <laughs> we can never escape. We can never escape. But somebody pointed out how this, the entire Zootopia city had been built with, like, the diversity of the animals in mind. And yet they had completely forgotten to make the city disability friendly. There were no, like, the curbs were not disability friendly. There were no ramps anywhere. Like, somebody pointed this out, and, like, the set designer was like, holy crap, that's my fault. I didn't think of that. You know, a lot of people don't, like, we don't think about it, and it's not okay. We should think about it. We absolutely yep. should. But I think this is a case of, like, this is, again, medieval times. They don't think about this stuff. But part of it is because they are smaller, more tight-knit communities they just help each other or help the ones who do need it. Like lifting them up and down, helping them out that way. It doesn't make it better, but it, they're also not like at such a disadvantage as they are in our modern world in a way too. Like there's, there's yeah. trade-offs here. There are, I wouldn't say balances, but things are different. I so just, they handle I just keep thinking about the wheelchair getting stuck in the dirt. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they Sister try to Sage. move and there's just a loose patch of dirt and they just go, Shink! And Not just stuck. that, but Sister Sage is a mouse and Rosie is a hare. Sister Sage must be jacked. <laughs> I heard Sister Sage was ripped. I heard Sister Sage had a six pack. <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> Sage tells him that that wasn't very nice, but he counters that he was only doing as he was told. He dropped the hammer. <laughs> now, Saxus hops about in pain. Grub climbs into the cheerful Rosie's lap, declaring himself safe now. And I, I do like how, like, Brian's like, all right, so we know the Abbey is not the focus anymore, so we are going to wrap things up here and have it be ready for them when they return. 
Like yep. it's, yeah, it's, it's just typical, like, wrap up the problem at the Abbey so the problem outside the Abbey can be dealt with. Simeon and the abbot inspect the new gatewood, and Simeon is happy, and so is the abbot. Both feel things are turning back towards the good. And before Simeon can tell of the wonderful dream he'd had, the abbot, excuse me, the abbot shushes him. He doesn't want to ruin Melissa's good mood by having her overhear talk of Dandon and the others. And she passes by them, threatening to wash the now-covered-in-green-paint bag and run. <laughs> the other two are convinced she's not happy unless she has a divin or two to scrub. And, like, I, I don't really know how to describe this, but it's like there there are some people out in the world, and I do kind of specifically want to say, like, this is like a cis woman kind of thing, but it's like, it's it's like they're, they're Karens, but they're like the good kind of Karens. Like, they, they generally weaponize their Karenness for good things, but they still are just kind of... They're annoying, and you're like, can you not be like this? They, they want to be the boss and be the best and know how to do things and take care of stuff. And, like, I like Melis. Don't get me wrong. Like, I have railed against a lot of what she has said or, you know, just harangued on and on about her attitudes and stuff. But I think I think it's good. I think she's a good character because I like seeing a badger who is so openly and obviously flawed but still does good she still tries to be a good mother to the abbey and this is kind of one of those little moments where i had a chuckle because again like she's still trying to do her thing she just she wants the world to be a certain way and when it's not a certain way she gets a little blinkered yeah and i don't think brian was writing her to like specifically be a bad character the way that melis is written is definitely supposed to be you're supposed to feel sympathetic toward her she's a yeah. good character she is but we're over here like we know people like this and they're <laughs> they, yeah they're good people but sometimes you want to take them and you want to shake them and go what the fuck <laughs> it's like why are you like this i love you but why are you like this every fucking southern so many southern white women so many southern white women that i know <laughs> Me and so, my predominantly Christian town. <laughs> so now we cut to a different scene. Six rats, the six who had tried and failed to swim out to get the wave blade, are given guard duty that night. And they bicker among themselves, mostly aiming their ire at Feltooth, who'd suggested the swim attempt. He defends his choice until the rat in front of him is dropped by a rock. Uh, he leans to check on them and an arrow goes right through his ear. With the panicked yell of attack, attack, he sprints for the fort. The three captains rouse the half-asleep rats, mustering weapons and barking orders. Just, Even with the darkness, wait, yeah, go. Just, no, it's just like, if he hadn't ducked to check on his buddy who'd just been clobbered, he probably would have been shot through. Yep. I don't think they ever mention what happens to him either. I think he manages to get out of it. Or, well, we assume they all nope. get killed. Yeah. yeah, they all die. Like <laughs> they all die. Death, murder, death, kill. <laughs> Even with the darkness, there are so many rats uh, below the track that are like just in the courtyard. Uh, that each smooth switch between archers and slingers leads to a strike. And I like this because it's I, I there's so many times through like military history that the setup of like fire drop load stand 
fire. It, it, it's been used for thousands of years and it didn't really change until we started to get modern warfare. When we didn't have to reload, we've got exactly. automatic weapons now. Yeah. But like until then, that was just the, the way to do it. And it still worked. It, it could still work It today, still works even. now. Yeah. yeah. Um, and as Because reloading an automatic weapon takes a hot second. And if those yeah. bitches get jammed, fuck you. Yep. Uh, like, if it ain't broke, don't fix ain't it. Broke. Yeah. In his dining hall, Gabul grabs a passing rod. Like, he reaches through a window, grabs him, and hauls him up through the sill, and is just like, what the fuck is going on? Uh, he's annoyed when the rat states the obvious, they're being attacked, and he wants the rat to tell him who is attacking. Uh, he orders the rat to stand outside and to sing when he sees the badger. The rat agrees, uh, but the moment the door is closed, he slinks away, and then dies a moment later to a slung stone. May his memory be a blessing. He doesn't even get named. Like, this guy nope. is such... He's like, he just doesn't have to worry about it anymore because he took a stone to the head. Exactly. <laughs> the boot to the head. <laughs> but what flavor is it? Boot to the head. Ah! <laughs> Stupid. We're in a silly mood today, guys. <laughs> we are. God. I'm just thinking, I'm just thinking fucking... I saw because I still on Tumblr I follow mod I believe or yeah. you reblogged it or something, but uh, it was like a comic panel of a boot getting yeah! thrown, and then uh, mod just responds with that video. It was uh, RGB was getting a boot thrown into his face by a Hero because Hero was calling him out on being a piece of crap because um. he is a piece of crap. And you know what? He acknowledged it. So you know what? Gross. He's like, you know what? That's fair. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, for those who haven't read it, please go and read a comic called The Property of Hate by uh, ModMad. Um, it's real good. It's real good. It's got a telehead object head character if that interests you. And uh, There's a lot of other object heads and fucked up characters. Yeah. Basically imagine if somebody who grew up like really loving Alice in Wonderland decided, you know what, to hell with it. I'm going to play with... Uh, silver era hollywood themes and story tropes and we're gonna get meta as hell deadpool Do you like eat rubber hose characters i sure hope you like rubber hose characters deadpool eat your heart out the way this person plays with panels is just Mwah. oh it's so good the fucking rabbit oh my god the rabbit is time and it's just oh it's so good i'm so behind i'm so behind well, things are things are happening, and I'm starting to cry because Mod is Asok. very good. Asok, I want Asok to return. Bring us Asok. Um. Anyway, uh, we love uh, web comics. I am not caught up on literally any of mine. Um, <laughs> so Joseph has his crews swap who's firing to keep the rats confused. It works until Riptung grabs a bow out of anger and fires a shot hitting a slinger like he figures out like no they're shooting like listen you've got to pay the fuck attention mm -hmm. and nobody is obviously uh, because they're all panicking mm -hmm. the three captains manage to bully the rats into a semblance of order and just as Danon begins to worry about where Tarkin is he hears the cry of Eulalia and the boom of the battering ram uh, they get to work with a vengeance, slamming into the gate with all the strength they have. Would you like to read Brian's phrasing? Uh, let, let me find it. Okay. Because uh, Kit just put a note here that's like, phrasing, Brian! The massive tree trunk, still matted with earth and grass, 
pounded its blunt head against the quivering timbers of the gates. <laughs> listen, listen, my my ca- the campaign that I'm in right now, the safe campaign with Joseph. We've been making jokes for like a week solid about this one NPC who has managed to bang two, or, or sorry, the one player character who has managed to bang two NPCs and is aiming for a third already. We have been making nothing but naughty jokes for a week. And I read this in the middle of that. It was just like, oh no, Brian. Kit, 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 would you say that they're naughty I'm going to fight you. I'm gonna fight you. I'm gonna fight you. I'm going to tattle on you. I'm tattling on you right now. I'm tattling. I'm telling Joseph on you. I am telling Joseph. That's it. You are gonna get it. <laughs> Listen, when I come up with a good one, it's like, oh no, Izzy, no. Yes, but that's part of it. How do you spell naughty? Not- I just the word naughty, like naughty, and then just there dash C A L. Yeah, you know, naughty call. There, there. I tattle on you in the in the campaign <laughs> chat. That's it. You're gonna get it. So the rats bunch up in the middle of the courtyard, firing at the battering ram crew. A few are slain, and Tarkin again rallies them. Now, Gabool, up in his, like, fucking throne room or whatever the fuck, can't properly see the fight below, but he's trying. He's running from arrow slit window to arrow slit window, and he is transfixed with horror when he sees Ron Blade step out of the dark onto the hill, as terrifying as the nightmares that had driven Gabool mad. Ignoring the scream threats and curses of Gabool, the badger shows the might of his species, shoving the great boulder down the hill. Like, I love I love me some Herculean feats of strength done by the badgers. When Brian just finally lets just let let it rip and you get to hear about like their muscles and you know how how they strain in their teeth and the growls and just when a badger really gets going, it gets going. And like if you've ever seen a real life badger that's angry, you know the sound that they're making. Yeah, and badgers like can move some earth. Oh yeah. Uh, he screams his battle cry and chases the rolling boulder down the hill. Uh, the boulder does its job well, crushing the fort wall with ease. Ronblade leaps into battle as Joseph and his crew charge after him, shouting Trag and Redwall. And they had to sneak Redwall in there somehow. <laughs> yeah. It's just, uh, Joseph's... I, I'm a little, I'm a little disappointed they put that in there. Just, just a little bit. Yeah. But it, it's yeah. it's where they want to go. It's where they're hopeful to go. And there are two... Well, because they can't stay on Terramort. There's no farmable land. Yeah. There's nothing. There's literally just the fort and a massive cave system. Yeah, they could survive off fishing and other things for a while. But I mean, they have also, no way to grow crops. There's also trees there. We know there are trees, too. Yeah, but they're probably not, like, good. They're, they're trees that are... Get grow on rocks. And yeah, stuff. they're yeah. not usually food trees. Good for timber, not for food. Yes. Uh, Joseph's crew is a poor match against the sea rats, even with their determined spirits. Without backup, they're doomed. Ronblade is stricken with the blood wrath once more, cleaves and cleaves his way through his enemies, having eyes only for the fort and his hated enemy. Now, 
The ram crew and the archery crew joined forces to finish off the front gate, seeing it'd be quicker to go that way than to try and use it as a ladder. Uh, their headlong charge not only knocks the gate down, stonework and all, but carries on to scatter the back of the sea rat horde. I'm sorry, Joseph but is glad am to I the see only one who the reinforcements like are there. Um, but am I the only one who heard, like, the, the Scooby-Doo scramble running noise as they're backing up to run? <laughs> yes, I think you were. Because <laughs> I didn't. Uh, Riptongue is slain by Danden. Uh, and, like, holy shit, this moment. <laughs> oh, yeah. Do you want to read it? Uh, you read it. I'm the one right. reading all the words. You get to read okay, it. Okay, thank you. Alrighty. Alright. How much do you want me to read? Like, should I start at the Riptongue knew the tide had turned? Yeah, might as well. Riptongue yeah. knew the tide had turned. He strove madly to group a fighting force around him, but the sea rats ignored his cries, each fighting with the strength of despair. The sea rat captain whirled his curved sword with long-born experience, taking out a vole and a field mouse, only to find himself confronted by Danden. The blade of Martin the warrior flashed in the young mouse's paws as he closed in to attack. Riptongue parried, frantically backing to get his creatures between himself and the cold-eyed sword's mouse. The sea rat tried every move and trick he knew, but his assailant kept coming yeah, coming on, battering the curved corsair's sword aside ferociously until he had Riptongue backed up to the wall. Above the dash of battle, above the clash of battle, Riptongue swung his sword high for a downward slash, screeching in Dandan's face. You'll never take me alive! Dandan slew him with a strong upward swing. I don't want you alive, rat. <laughs> it's real good. It's real good. It's real good. It's a good shit right there. Yeah. Uh, I fucking love, though, like, how very much like Martin Danden is in this moment. Like, yes. that was a Martin move. I'm just uh, imagining, like, Martin and Gaunt Force Ghosts watching this, and Martin's just, like, smug as hell while Gaunt's like, he could have been a little more flippant about it. Hookfin, seeing that the rats have lost the battle, uh, begins to sneak out, only to be stopped at his tracks by the waiting Tanlock. And my comment on this was Sasuke versus Itachi Final Fight AMV 2008. I don't actually know when the final fight aired on TV, so that's probably not correct, but also I don't care. <laughs> I don't know. It, it's, it's a high school experience for us, let's be honest. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Listen, Tanlock's got big Sasuke vibes. Oh it's great. God. I want a book about Tanlock and his brooding quest for revenge. Write the fanfic, Kit. <laughs> Write the fanfic. I've got so many I've got to do already, and I'm not a writer. <laughs> do it anyway. Ah. Or, hey, our listeners, you write it. Show it to us. Please. We want to read your Redwall fanfic. That's your homework. Your homework is to give us Tanlock fanfic? Even if it's something short, just it, give us Tanlock fanfic. It can be a one-shot. That's acceptable. Yes. We want it. Give it to us. <laughs> anyway, uh, Joseph is almost killed by Grimtooth and a rat, only being saved by the arrival of Mariel and Dury. She takes out Grimtooth, and Dury takes out the other rat. Uh, Tarkin reaches them and asks if anyone has seen Ronblade. Reunited with Danden as well, the group of four rush to the fort. They see that Ronblade has already dealt with the door, and Mariel declares that they will see who gets Gabool. Saxtus gazes over the forest, feeling the end of summer is near. Simeon slowly moves towards him, mentioning the coming of autumn. 
He's surprised, thinking the old mouse had read his mind. But no, it was just a good guess. He also guesses that Saxtus is thinking of his two dear friends, wanting them to come home. He confesses of how he dreamt of the battle at Fort Bladegirt the night before. Simeon asks if Martin had sent the dream, and also comforts Saxtus uh, that he often sees Martin in dreams. His dreams are not to be ignored. He tells he he tells how he saw the battle up to them running into the fort. To which I snarkily put, Martin Pay-Per-View likes to leave things on cliffhangers. It sure do. Uh, their musings are cut short uh, by Han Rosie calling out to them, excitedly asking <laughs> if they'd like to try her seed cakes. Uh, Simeon kindly says they will speak of it later, and Paw and Paw, they head down to meet her. Uh, the seed cake in question is evidently hard and awful. Uh, thankfully, it also seems to have disappeared. When she mentions having to bake another, Friar Alder hastily says they're out of seeds. Uh, and Kit said I was imagining, like, a bird suet cake with honey, and I'm over here like, uh, it's probably hardtack. Yeah. <laughs> and then you, later, were like, is this hardtack? Yeah. Because that's the thing, with hardtack, like, it's hard. You can't really bite into it. You have to soak it. Right. So what Han Rosie was making was probably hardtack. Yeah. I mean, that probably is what she would have learned to make because, like, she's not one of the stay-at-home hares. She's one of the patrolling hares, so she wouldn't really, like, have time to learn a lot of cooking, necessarily. Um, she knows how to do cooking that'll get her uh, vittles to survive a long trip exactly. and cooking while on the road. Exactly. She could probably make a damn good I-just-dug-up-a-bunch-of-random-shit-from-around-here-forage and I made a stew. Mm-hmm. But Look, I she... even caught a fish and put fish in it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, when young Cocklebur tries to helpfully tell the friar that he knew of a bag of seeds, he is silenced with an elbow to the gut. Oh, nope, no seeds. None at all. They actually, they started sprouting their bird food. <laughs> uh, beneath the table, Grub and Bag were using the seed cakes as building blocks. They don't have enough, but they know the friar wouldn't be happy with them if they asked Rosie to make more. They want to build a model of Redwall. And her, her, for Alderal Strangle E, if you will mention it. Strangle. In the Great Hall, work on the tapestry is going smoothly. I forgot that they were working on the tapestry, honestly. It it showed up, like, in the first chapter, and then this is only the second time it's come up. To to, To be fair, a lot of shit's been happening. Oh, yeah. No, no, no. I'm definitely not, like, knocking Brian for this. It was just, like... Not, I don't blame either of us for forgetting. Yeah. Uh, so they're basing the tapestry off of sketches that they found in the gatehouse, which probably happened uh, also when they were cleaning out the gatehouse. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they were like, oh, look, we found some more sketches for the tapestry, which means we can do more work on it. And really, Hubert, like, oh, where the fuck were those? Yeah. They were under your chair. Because you are a dirty, dirty mouse. Fuck. Just pig pen in it through the entire place, just putting off dust. Uh, Brother Hubert gives Sister Serena some brown thread, telling her to use it if she was starting on Martin. And Saxus counters, offering a slightly darker shade. When asked why he felt it was the proper brown, he says he'd sort of sensed it. Martin showing up like, make sure they get my good side. <laughs> <laughs> No, it's very cute, though. I love No, Gonf showed up and said, make sure yes. you get his good side. <laughs> Gonf's like, listen, I love Martin very much, but he is not a man of fashion. Someone has to help him. Please put him in fancy armor. 
God, please. <laughs> He's so bad at this. If he could be on the tapestry just wearing a habit, he would be. And I'm not going to let that happen to my very good best friend. <laughs> and then, like, we get a mood whiplash, which I kind yep. of wish that Brian had made this. It's like a start of another chapter. Like, it's that no. abrupt of a cut. No. Same chapter. In the Hall of Flirt, Blade Gert, Ron Blade calls out a challenge to Gabool. It echoes back to him unanswered, and he hunts for the rat throughout the fort. Uh, Gabool is, of course, in his rooms, I guess, trying to psych himself up for the inevitable fight. He talks about how he's seen all the captains come and go. He'll kill the badger, destroy the be bell, then build a better fleet and live in high comfort. With hookers Ron Blade and blackjack! What? God. <laughs> Runblade again calls out a challenge, and Gabool taunts the badger quietly behind his door as he listens to him call out, claiming he no longer fears him. If you don't fear him anymore, why are you being quiet? Why are you hiding? Why, why are you running? Why are you running? Runblade finally sees his bell and is dazzled by its workmanship, uh, except for it's also covered in grime and discoloration. Yeah. You know, he's like, oh no, it's all messy, but oh man, look at these cool things. Uh, he can now see the secret message for Badger Lords alone, and it makes him smile. But it is for later. For now, he begins to ring the bell, polishing a section of it. Uh, he can see Gabool enter the dining hall in the reflection of the polished metal. He turns on Gabool, easily smacking the rat's blade aside. He then tells Gabool to go pick it up to have a proper try. The drama! The cold-bloodedness! The sheer calculation! Yes, Brian, we love it! Good job, good sir! <laughs> I was having fun reading this part like this. Again, like we've mentioned this before in other recordings, we have very few notes here because we were having so much fun just reading the book. Yes. Because oh, like, yeah. Brian was, he's getting into that flow. We're getting the good moments. We're getting the hits of everything coming together. We're getting the good fights. We're getting the good exchanges. Like, it's such a good flow that it's hard to tap in and actually slow down and be like, all right, let's take notes. Yeah. And the notes we do have are just like, yes! <laughs> We're enjoying Fuck yes! We are having fun. <laughs> yeah. Meryl and Co. arrive then, and Gabool dismisses her as another ghost. Uh, he also uses the distraction of her arguing with Ronblade to stab the Badger Lord in the chest and flee. Uh, Ronblade throws the dagger aside, saying it had barely grazed his fur. It had pierced his breastplate, though. Not bad for sea rat steel. When that when that happened for a moment, I'm just like, uh, like, wait, is this how he's uh, gonna get him oh out no. of? And oh, then and then Ronblade's just like, anyway, this is a fucking toothpick. Yeah. Uh, they chase after the fleeing Gabool, and Ronblade admonishes Mariel to not interrupt him again. And they run down the spiral staircase. Just, just Romblade Kool-Aid manning it through the doors. Yep. Uh, Gabool takes an old carpet and covers Scrablag's pit with it and positions himself in the back of the cave and waits. Also, Romblade... sorry to interrupt, but this is a warning where we get to the really brutal death. Yes, holy shit. It still gives me goosebumps. I don't like it. Christy, wake up! Uh... <laughs> Kitsy, wake up! <laughs> uh, when Ronblade crushes this door too, Gabool baits him into charging by insulting his honor. Like, fight me paw to paw. 
Um, the blood wrath takes over him, and Ronblade falls for the trap. He throws his sword aside and charges. Uh, and Ronblade, as the minute his paws hit the rug, he goes right through it into Ron, uh, Scrablag's pit. And Scrablag is on top of Ronblade in an instant. It aims to strike for his face, which is the only part of him that's unarmored. Yeah. Uh, dipshit. Uh, <laughs> listen! Dipshit! Wear a helmet! <laughs> he should know better! He's a badger! Yes, I know! <laughs> dipshit. But a rush of instinct causes Ronblade to grab the scorpion by the tail and hurl it out of the pit. It smacks into the ceiling and then falls right onto Gabool. <laughs> The rat tries to shake the scorpion off, but fails as he is stung many times over, and he dies. And I don't want us to read it out loud. It is... It's very... Visceral? It's visceral, but yeah. the broad strokes is that he gets stung in the at the base of his skull. Yeah. Several Multiple times. Multiple times. Uh, and then he dies. Uh, Scrapleg then aims for Ronblade once more, uh, just in time for Dandan to arrive and slice the scorpion clean in two, sending its still twitching body down into the pit. And so I really like that the creature who ha would have the deepest grudge against Gabul is the one to kill him. Yeah, because he's the one who, I... well, kind of, because he's been in prison for longer than Marielle and her father, even, from yes. the implication. Yeah. And... Scrablog has been there, I think, since either just before or just after Gabool took over as, like, the ruler of the sea rats or whatever the fuck. Yeah. And, and again, like, I don't, I don't mind this one as much. Again, like, there's my small complaint of, like, Brian not allowing the heroes to get revenge. Like, the, the good guys are not allowed to have revenge. Revenge is bad. Good guys don't do revenge. But in this case, it was, as we joked about before, this was not a Shekhov's gun. This thing was a glowing beacon of, like, this is gonna be how he dies. Neat, neat, neat. With little neon signs pointing at him. Um, so yep. it was well set <laughs> Just up. a neon sign, death here. Yeah. It was well set up. It was well done. Oh, you know what this reminds me of? Sorry, I keep clapping a lot this recording. Um, You're fine. You know what this reminds me of? The Last what? Unicorn, the Harpy and the Witch. <gasps> Yes. It's that kind of vibe. Like it's the it's like the witch knew that the harpy was going to kill her someday. But it was still proof that she had had power once, that she did have magic. And Scrab that she had taken the harpy. Yeah. And Scrablag was proof that Gabool had power, that he was crafty and clever, and it came around to kill him. Yep. Um uh, I don't like, though, that Scrablog is killed immediately afterwards and that Ronblade yeah. calls it evil. It's a fucking scorpion. Mm -hmm. Like, he says evil kills evil, and it's like, no. It just no, is that's scorpion. not how this works. This is a scorpion. It's they're, just a dragon. Be nice to the dragon. They're chaotic neutral at best. Come on, guys. Yes. It, although, uh, I bet you, Brian, we know that Brian definitely subscribes to the it's my nature kind of Aesop. Aesop? Yeah. Aesop. Um, yeah. Because of how he Scorpion treats... Scorpion and the frog. Because Brian prefers nature over nurture. 
very obviously in his books, and we we will get to that. Just like me hearing that scarecrow, like the bottom, as like outcast looms behind my shoulder. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Sword six clauses. <laughs> <laughs> So Tarkin laments that none of them got to kill Gabul, but Joseph comforts his daughter. Uh, evil killed evil, good triumphed, that's what matters. Uh, they won the night, now it's time to leave the fort. Four boats are set to sail from Terramort. Uh, Duri with the renamed Waveblade, now the Gabriel after his uncle. Tarkin with the Han Rosie, for obvious reasons, formerly the Black Sail. <laughs> Dandan on the Abbot Bernard, formerly the Nightwake. And finally, the crab claw returned to what she was, the periwinkle. The fort above them burns. Joseph says it's time to take the bell to Salamandastron, but Ronblade denies that plan. The bell is to be taken to Redwall. Uh, it was Martin who helped the badger when he was trapped in the blood wrath. Martin who used his body to throw the scorpion. He must repay the warrior with the bell. So this man Dandan be- muses then. Was it Martin who slew Gabul, Ronblade, or a cranky old scorpion? Mariel doesn't care either way. She sets up the swallow to point the way and calls out for the ships to cast off. The sea rings with cries of freed woodlanders. So this man just be mouse Jesus, huh? I am that is, bitch! <laughs> just, I do find it interesting too because like we noted in the earlier, like we had a question last recording about like do you think Martin has to have the sword to be able to really do his thing? And like here we kind of have proof of that where he was able to help Ronblade because Dandan had the sword there. Mm-hmm. Um, and meanwhile, yeah, I don't think Wall, Martin would have been able to help if, uh, if, if the sword, I don't think Martin would have been able to help, would have been able to help Ronblade if the sword hadn't been there. Meanwhile, back at Redwall, the most he's doing is sending visions. Like he's not possessing or doing anything else. He's just sending dreams. He's just like, hey, look what's happening over here. Look, they're all alive. It's great. Yeah, look they're at doing a fantastic job. Look at look at them. Be proud of them. Look at they're going to come back. Look at what's happening where I am right now. See wi- see what my eyes see. I am that is, bitch. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. Once you said this man be- just be mouse Jesus, uh, like I had to put I am that is, bitch. No, it's very good. It made me laugh last <laughs> night. <laughs> Uh, Autumn has settled in, good and strong. Saxtus and Simeon keep up their sigil? Sigil. Did you mean vigil? No, sigil. Um, Vigil? No, sigil. I think, don't they say sigil? Because a sigil is also, um, oh yeah, I guess it is vigil. But I could have sworn that- A sigil is a mark. Yeah, that's true. That's weird, because I could have sworn that, like, I guess it's because my brain connected sigil and vigil as being as, um- Synonyms? uh, Synonyms, yes, thank you. Uh, could you not. could you reread that and start over so I can just edit this part out? <laughs> Autumn has settled in good and strong. Saxtus and Simeon keep up their vigil while the Abbey goes into full harvest and preservation swing. Everyone seems to be in a good mood, or, well, almost everyone. Three terrible troublemaker trio dibbins, Bag, Run, and Grub, are quite sour and rebellious at the moment. They get up to four scrubs a day from getting covered in fruit juice, or dust from the cellars, or grime from the kitchen. They were also put to bed early, and they're being forced to learn to sew so they could fix their own torn clothes. 
The final straw comes when Brother Hubert makes dark threats to put them to school and learn history. It's not dark threats, it's just the ominous uh, forewarning of what's to come. Yeah, but for them... They're almost of that age. Yeah, for them it's like dire dark threats. Um, Let's see. Well, even Brian writes it as... Hubert had also hinted darkly that they would soon be attending Gatehouse School and Abbey History Study. And I do like that we get, like, another little kind of nod of how, like, the Redwallers get educated, where it's like they have their own tiny little school in the Gatehouse where the recorder does the teaching. Yeah. I do I also like do like that he's the one who's teaching them how to sew, because that's usually a skill traditionally taught by matriarchs. Mm-hmm. Like, Mother Mellis would be teaching that. But no, she's busy, so but Hubert also, can do it. Also, yes and no. Or, like, like, maybe he just does it. Also, also though, like, in actual old, like, real abbeys and stuff, like, where they would have no one but men, the men had to be able to sew. That's true. This is not an abbey like that, though. Also, wait, no, you're talking about a monastery. Monastery, yes. An abbey would have uh, Sist- men yeah. and women. But even so, yes. Because the women would be nuns. None your business. Yep. Uh, all three of the little Dibbons uh, swear to run away the next morning. They're like, uh, no, we're not doing this. Forget this. Absolutely not. We're going to go on adventures. Uh, and as they promised, they escaped northward that morning at dawn with three bulging rucksacks of food and sassy content attitudes. They're like, we're running away. We're on an adventure. They're going to be so sorry when they discover we're gone. You know, the, the typical kid thing. Mm-hmm. Um, as the trio enjoys a late breakfast or early lunch and swap tales of what terrible tyrants they'll become, their jovial mood is turned to fright. A huge badger has emerged from the mist and he's all armored up and everything. He teases <laughs> the three Dibbons, calling them bandits. Uh, once they sit out that they're only Dibbons and from Redwall, he picks the three offenders up and carries them back down the road, saying, well, we'll just see about that. I, I like interactions like this when they're written like the adult knows that the kids are fine, but they're playing it dead serious. You know, oh, and the yeah. kids are just like, oh, oh, crap. Oh, crap. Oh, boy. Oh, no, we fucked up. We made a mistake. Uh-huh. Mistakes. Just, well, well, what have we here? Three marauders lying in wait for poor, honest travelers. Uh, 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 us and be only Dibbins, sir. Dibbins, eh? A likely story. You look more like bloodthirsty rogues to me. All right, then. Supposing you are Dibbins, where are you from? Bag found his ton. Please, sir. Redwall Abbey, sir. Romblade lifted them carefully in his hefty battle-scarred paws. Redwall Abbey. I think I may know that place. You'd better come with me. I'll soon find out if you're telling the truth. (laughs) And you can tell he's trying so hard not to just grin at them. I know. Uh, He carries them to the track camp where they see a brightly polished bell being carried in a cart. He presents them to Dandon and Dury with a wink. And when they're accused of being sea rats, Grub points out that they're not rats at all. And he knows very well that's Dandon and Master Master Quill. I can't pronounce that. Master Quill. Master Quill. Grub tried reasoning with his captors. Oh, good away. I'm a molar and they be two hotter folk. You be Dandon. And Meister Quill. Why knows he? Pleased with his retort, they say they'll take them back to Redwall. The bag warns them about Melis's habit of throwing folks into baths. <laughs> Melis, of course, is spending a fruitless morning searching for them. 
giving up at lunch, she sits with Saxtus and Simeon. Uh, Saxtus goes off to search while she rests, and Simeon gently teases her for complaining about the trio. She'd be bored to death without the odd pickles around to contend with. And I, Gotta have something to do. Yeah. And it just, again, it was kind of cute how, like, they it, it's a constant little running gag in this book where they're pointing out she's not happy unless she has, like, kids to wrangle or just something to chew on and a problem to fix. Yep. Uh, Saxus, of course, does a very thorough search, and when he can't find the Dibbins, worry begins to gnaw at him. But he's like, oh, I can't, I can't make Mother Mellis worry. They've got to be around here somewhere. Uh, a look to the northern road, though, changes his mood in a blink. Quick rub of his eyes and a second look leaves him trembling with excitement. He calls for the abbot and Mellis, insisting they come up to see. The rest of the abbey follows, even as he ignores their calls for him to tell them what it is they need to see. And once they're all up there, of course, they all stare in shock until Gabriel Quill breaks the silence, calling out joyously to his nephew. A cheer is raised from those on the wall tops. The bell cart stops and Mariel hops on top. With a mighty swing of Gullwhacker, she strikes the bell so all of Mossflower can hear its beautiful tone. The freed woodlanders all cheer their various war cries and are welcomed in by the abbot, who gives the four who had left a grateful welcome home. And, oh man, I love me a good bookend. Like, this is, uh, honestly, I would say Brian did nail the ending on this one. Yeah, he didn't, he didn't fumble it. It's pretty yeah, good. Yeah, I, like, there is one thing we complain about in a little bit, but we'll get to that when we get to that. Um, most of it, like, for the most part, I am very satisfied with this ending. He's, he's managed to make this book stand out. Everything that we complained about was mostly fixed in this book. Um, the characters are good. The setting is good. The plot is good. Everything comes back together nicely. I have very little complaints. I think Brian it did It wasn't boring at any point. Hmm? It wasn't boring at any point. No, the pace was very well kept. Uh, so there's just one last bit, of course. Mm -hmm. We end the book with a snippet of writing from, uh, does it say Brother Saxus or does it say Abbot Saxus? No, it, it says Brother. Oh, it does say Abbot. Wow, did I miss that up? You, did you write this at, when you were tired? <laughs> yeah, it was nighttime. I wanted to get it done so you'd be able to have time to read it. All right. Notes. We end the book with a snippet of writing from Abbot Saxtus. He reminisces of the time that has passed, how the older set have retired, how the trouble trio are now mostly respectable adults, and of the feast of the bell raising. Joseph was pleased to have the bell named after him. We also learn uh, Tarkin and Rosie are married now. And here's my for whatever one, reason. Here's my one complaint. We never get a single interaction between these two through the entire book. Like, that is one of the things I was actually looking forward to. I wanted to see these two interacting. Like, I wanted him to write how these two would actually interact instead of Tarquin just going like, Ah, my lady, I love her so much. She's so wonderful. Don't, she laughs at me, but I love her so. Right. It's just like, I wanted to see them actually interact. Like, Yay, they're married now, I guess, but I was hoping we would actually get, like, a meeting or comp reunion head, between comp them. Head, comp head, comp head, <laughs> comp head, comp head. To be fair, Tarquin is pretty het, so. Oh, absolutely. Um, in a twist, Oak Tom and Tree Rose have married as well. <laughs> so Oak Tom has come back to the Abbey. Um, 
Saxus muses how Flag, Rosie, Tarkin, and Ronblade did a good job of clearing out the feast by themselves. I mean, Ronblade alone, I wouldn't be surprised because yeah. he's him, him a badger, him big, him hungry. Yeah. The blood wrath probably ex- takes a lot of energy. Yeah. Ronblade explains the carvings on top of the bell. They'd predicted the bell's arrival at Redwall and even how it'd be named after Joseph. He also gave Tarkin and Rosie permission to roam the lands. They've made their own group, the Fur and Foot Patrol, which is manned by their 12 children! Something something rabbits like to multiply joke here. Jesus! 12, like, are they are they twins? Do they come in batches? How do rabbits have kids here? Like, just me again, just trying not to think too hard about this world and how, like, how humanoid versus how animal they are. Just... Yes. The answer is a yes. Yes. Roof Brush is revealed to be the one who hid the sword at the top of the abbey. It's guessed he had a visit from Martin in his dreams. And this is like a fucking great callback to Redwall. It's fantastic. It's so, like, it's just this little small thing. Like, oh yeah, and we hid the sword at the top of the abbey. It's kind of weird, but Roof said he had to, so okay, Roof. Yep. Uh... Roof is the bell ringer and also good friends with Saxtus. They're QPPs. <laughs> they are platonic life partners. Queer platonic partners. Uh, Meryl and Dandon have gone off south for adventures. Saxtus, now the new abbot, laments not being able to go with them, but knows his heart is with them. The bell tower was built of timber taken from the four ships that brought it to the abbey. He says it's time for dinner soon, where he'll talk to the ancient Simeon and be chuckled at by the retired abbot. And, of course, before leaving, he whacks his head on the end of the bell pole, the gull whacker, left by Mariel to remind all how the bell came to be at the abbey. I love this. It's so delightful. Just the, the, the wrap-up of everything, the, everything going on its way. And, like, there's plenty left open for its own little, like, things that could show up in future books or future side stories. There's a lot of really good little things here. Um, yeah. There's good little bits. Okay. It's, it's nice. This book, look, like we said before, it with the past three books, we've had a lot of, like, this, like critiques about the writing and about how the stories have been set up, the pacing and stuff. Mariel of Redwall took all of that and was like, okay, here you go. This one's better. Yes. And I'm excited to go from here because I'm pretty sure this is when Brian started having a serious editor. Yeah. Either he had a serious editor or he really hit his stride because like the first three books were the setup. They're kind of the practice, you know, sometimes it takes a little bit to get into things. Um, mm-hmm. but this book is where it all really comes together. And I would say Mariel would definitely be a good, like jumping in point for, Oh yeah, it, absolutely. It's a, good, it's a good standalone Redwall book mm-hmm. because like it, ha- it has connections to other books in the future and the past of the series, but it's not mm-hmm. reliant on those books for you to be able to understand and enjoy what's happening. Yeah. Like, there's a little bit where getting the context about Martin might be a little weird mm-hmm. because, like, this book definitely works so well because we've already had some of that context. But it's not so much that you'll feel like you're missing something. Okay. It's 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 still like, hey, there's this weird sword that's from, like, one of the founders of the Abbey. And, oh, it's probably magic. 
You know, it's one of those things that comes up in fantasy books where you're just like, okay, suspension of disbelief. I'm going to accept this. Having the context from the first three books makes that hit a little bit better for people who have already read those books. But not having the context, I don't think, takes anything away. Exactly. So our questions. (laughs) What was your favorite weird Abbey food in this book? I don't think we got any. We didn't really because, like, it's... it's, Not in this part. Not in this part, at least. It's the end fight. Like, they do mention the feast, but they don't really mention, like, what was at the feast or... We um, did. Just... We learned... We know what Duff is now. Yes. <laughs> from from Ben. Thank, thank you, God. Ben. Thank you, Ben. Also, just m- just me slightly shaming England. Why did you name a piece of food Spotted Dick? <laughs> why? Why this England? Why are you like this England? Why? So so okay. So Plum Duff was an old pudding, mostly navy with raven raven raisins. <laughs> In a heavy suet dough. Four and twenty blackbirds. we have learned. Four. Shut the fuck up. <laughs> Baked in and a skilly, I'm assuming, is just something that's made on a skillet. Mm-hmm. That's why it would be called skilly. And yeah, that led to an entire conversation talking about, like, English bread puddings and spotted dick. Which, the reason it's called that is it's a bread that's got, like, uh, berries in it. Mm-hmm. And so it's spotted. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> spotted dick. God. Why? England, why though? <laughs> uh, was there an animal that appeared that surprised you? Slash, did an animal subvert expectations? Not in this part. I, I do, I do want to say, I really, really like how Brian brought back the first book uh, antagonists with the Flitche and um, Rakatan. Yes, that was really that was good. good. Yeah, like that's the thing, like. This is another this is another book where we had no Deus Ex Machinas. We had nothing that really came out of left field. Like the closest thing would be Oak Tom. But even then he's shown to be a former member of the Abbey. So even then he's not really anything unexpe- or or uncalled for. He is part of that setting and we just hadn't been introduced to him yet. It's not like Mask yeah. who just shows up, does his thing, and, and then, then dies. dies. Yeah. Um he Okitam is what we wanted Mask to be. Yes, um, honestly. And it's so, worked yeah. really good. Um, uh, what was your favorite part in this part of the book? Oh, man. Just the, the, the Ron Blade uh, and Gabool in the dining hall. With a knife! With a knife! Um, uh, it's very good. Um, so good. Honestly, for me, I think it's uh, when they break through the gate... Mm-hmm. Which is just, it's so good, the way that it's described. Yes. Uh, so from, from Sir Peden, from Ben, do you think that Red Wallers would shave down to regular fur or just have an entirely hairless chin? I mean, their whiskers are on, like, I mean, like, their, their sensitive whiskers, though, are on their chin, so I imagine that they wouldn't really need to. Also, yeah, Sir Peden asked this question to attack me specifically. Um, yeah. Ben, how dare you? Um, but on- <laughs> I think that it's like it. I think that any of the characters that grow quote unquote beards or any kind of facial hair, mm-hmm. it's like shedding fur, and like it's it's just they just have shaggy facial fur. Pretty much, but yeah. like they have to comb it out every spring. Yeah, well, like a good example um, in the Redwall game that we played, like there were some mice who had like 
an implication of a mustache because of how they stylized their fur, which was very nicely done. Mm-hmm. I liked that a lot. Like, just yeah. the implication of one with how the fur was arranged was very nice. Yeah, done. it um, was good shit. Uh, and a more serious question from Ben. Uh, which is your favorite badger so far in the series? Uh, Constance. I mean, okay, I can give the actual answer I have, but it doesn't technically count because we've only seen him once, and that is Sunflash the Mace, because he's my favorite, my favorite fucking badger, but we've seen him once, we haven't seen him do anything, because he's in the next book, I think, (laughs) so I can't say him, so for right now, it's Constance. Uh... And then from an anon on Tumblr, uh, and we answered this on Tumblr, but we're doing it here as well, because mm-hmm. I know not everybody follows the Tumblr. Mm-hmm. Uh, are the carnivorous, quote-unquote, good beasts just eating tons and tons of fish and shellfish? Maybe that's the real, again, late-night posting. I don't actually think this is the intent. Reason Badger started heading to the coast. It's a fun theory, though. Like, I like, I like Yeah, um, it's a good theory. What's that? It's like Watsonian versus Doylist. Yes. Yeah. Watsonian versus doyalistic yeah. uh, reasoning. Because, like, sometimes it's okay to, like, even if the author didn't intend something to explain something in the series, it's okay to turn it and be like, you know what, this could explain what the author didn't bother explaining. Personally, yeah. my headcanon always was is that outside of Red Ball, people absolutely do still eat insects and so on for extra protein. Um, but... As far as the red walls go, no, they strictly eat. They're they're pescatarian. Yeah. I mean, they have a whole pond where they take care of fish because those fish are their main source of protein. Because you yep. icky bugs, I guess. Yeah. And we have a correction to make on the last episodes. Yes. Um we mispronounced this person's username. Their username is Kai the Mad. Mm-hmm. Not Kate. It's Kai. Um and when we get into the next book, we will be answering again the question, uh, which of the major vil- which of the villains major and minor would be vampires and which would be werewolf. So question, Grey Patch, vampire or werewolf? Uh, with the way, honestly, I'd be more willing to lean towards a vampire with him. Mm-hmm. Because... He's a lot more like cunning. Yeah. In the way that he works. Yeah. Um, Scrablag, werewolf. Werewolf. I mean, does Scrabbleg count as a villain? He's just kind of more an incidental, like, he didn't want to be here. <laughs> he got... Do werewolves in the throes of their transformation count as villains? Mm. No. I mean, like, it's like, how much control are they in? How much control do they have is the question. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Send us questions. Yes. Do it. Holy crap, we knocked this so, out in an hour, like um, like a little under two hours. Holy crap. <laughs> <laughs> so, thank you for listening to Abbey Archives. We are grateful you lent us your ears, and we hope you've enjoyed your time with us. I have been Izzy. You can find me on Twitter at the Sean Deer. You can find me on Tumblr at Lots of Deer. Um, you can find the other podcast I'm on at Hope's Hearth Pod. You can find the podcasting collective that we are both part of at Hearthside Enclave. Um, it's great. It's fun. You should join us. You should listen to things. Um, I might possibly be on another podcast soon-ish. It depends on when, uh, we decide to record the pilot. Uh, and I'm in the middle of recording a completely different podcast. It's not even part of the network. (laughs) 
you know, shenanigans. As you do. Uh-huh. Uh, also, you know, the the, mon- ma- the pff, Mama Mia thing that uh, Moonshot's doing that I'm part of. <laughs> anyway, yeah, that's me. And I have been Kit. Uh, you can find me at Kitsy in a box on Twitter, uh, Tumblr as well. Um, I make the Kitsunday. They are a closed species of foxes with dessert tails. I will make custom foxes if you throw a dessert at me and some money. Um, money. Within uh, certain stipulations. Within certain stipulations, yes. Must be dessert. And there are seasonal tales as well, which I'm excited. We're going to roll into fall tales soon. Um, yes, the good shit. Uh, They're all good, but yeah. like some of us have pr- particular just aesthetics. Aesthetic. We like fall. Anyway, <laughs> uh, you can find us both at Abbey Archives on Twitter and Tumblr. Um, uh, I, I do have one thing I wanted to put a note in here before we forget. Um, we are going to take a small break from Redwall right now because we've done four uh, four books in a row now. Yes, this is the fourth. We've book. done four books. Uh, our next recording, we are each going to pick a book we read and talk about that book for a little while, just to give ourselves a little break. Um, so our next episode will be the blooper episode, and then after yep. that, we will have an episode where we just talk about book two books that we like, one for me, one for Mizzy. And we will try to recommend them to you. Yeah. And we're also going to be doing a recording with the folks from Escafil Files. But we're going to... that That's that's a surprise. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not telling you what that's about. Uh, so yeah. May your hearth be warm and your heart be merry. From us to you at Redwall Abbey. Yay. Clap at the 40. We did it. Sure. Yeah, at the 40. listening. If you like this podcast and want to help keep it going, please consider donating to our coffee, linked in the description below. Follow our Twitter and Tumblr at Abbey Archives and join our Discord. This podcast is part of Hearthside Enclave, and some other shows you might like are Hope's Hearth, a solar hope punk actual play podcast, and Post-Apocalyptic News Radio, a Fallout-inspired audio drama.